This is the word of the Lord. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. Continue to remind you that we are looking, as we look through the Gospel of Mark at the real Jesus, we're looking at a Jesus who confronts us. Why do we need to be confronted? Because if left to our own ways, we would go astray. We need someone who's able to confront us. We need someone who is able to question us. We need someone who can say, why are you doing that? Why are you thinking that in your hearts? What are you up to? We need a Jesus that's able to do that. We need a Jesus who can heal us from our deepest wounds, not just our external afflictions, but from the deep gashes in our heart that come from living in a fallen world. We need a Jesus who is able to forgive us. We need that kind of Jesus. And as we look in the Gospel of Mark, we are finding a Jesus that we could not invent, nor could any human being invent because because that's exactly what He does. And no human beings invent God's who confront them and challenge them and heal them and forgive them. This is a word from God. And we also have before us in this passage, and I hope by that we get to the end, you will see this great divine paradox. What we're seeing in this picture is a king who suffers. What we're seeing in this passage is a Lord who serves. What we're seeing in this passage this morning is what Revelation describes as a lion who's willing to be a sacrificial lamb. Now that challenges our paradigms. Because we think of kings as people who smash and mash. We don't think of kings as people who are willing to suffer for their people. We think about lords as those who reign sovereignly. We don't think about them being people who are willing to don on a towel and serve. When we think about lions, we think about these great, massive beasts that roar. And yet C.S. Lewis has done us a great favor, hasn't he, in showing us a lion who is able to be gentle and willing to go and be sacrificed 
so that the Edmonds that we are might be spared. Let's look at this passage and see how it begins to unfold for us. The first thing I want us to look at is, in the, from this passage, is the ultimate friend. And I want you to, as you look at this, I want you just to ask yourself this question. Why would these men do this? Why would these men do this? They basically bring this man on a stretcher, four of them, and they haul him into these. And you have to understand, at this time, Capernaum, they're very, these cities are very narrow. They're mud huts. They're basically one, one level with a very strong, powerful um, roof because you did a lot of your activity on the roof, especially in the evenings and in the early mornings. You might even have your stove up there. So that roof would have been a very thick place. And so you see these men and they come walking down through these narrow corridors. They should have known that if Jesus was at home and everybody had heard it, that the place was going to be packed. And it wouldn't have taken much to pack the place out. These, these homes weren't that large. And so it's crowded. And these men show up. And most people would do what? We'll have to come back tomorrow. We'll have to catch Jesus at a better time. We'll have to get up earlier. We'll have to make better plans. But that's not what these men do. They march on. They, they come forward. They, they show uh, this sense of reality that their friend's situation is desperate and there is no waiting. Do you see that? Do you see that in this text what we see from these men is when they come near to the house, they already knew it was going to be crowded most likely. They already knew the circumstances they were probably going to find. And they show up with a determination to get this man to Jesus because they recognize their friend's desperate need. They are convinced that Jesus is the only answer for their friend. And that's why they press forward. Do you see that? There's no other answer for this man but Jesus. So that's why they do it. They show a conviction, a faith, a belief. And Jesus even says he sees their faith once they get there. Now, another thing I want us to look at that they do is they have a commitment. They are committed to this person. They've made a commitment and they're not going to back down on it. They're committed to get him to Jesus. They're not put off by their friends or by, by the crowd. They are going to get this man to Jesus. They also show undaunted effort. They are not going to be put off in, in carrying this man. And the other thing is, I think it's almost humorous if you were to translate this out of Greek. You, you kind of get the humor when, when you read the English translation and it says to this, it says, and they removed the roof above him. Folks, it was probably this thick of, 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 a substance that probably had hardened to be kind of like caliche. And for those of you that have dug in the desert and have hit caliche, that ain't pretty. That's labor. That's hard work. These men basically got up on that roof and dug and dug and dug until they made a hole big enough to let down this man's pallet. Do you understand the commitment? Do you understand the undaunted effort? Do you understand what these men were doing do you understand what kind of belief it would take to go through that kind of effort to get someone to Jesus? Do you understand what these men are demonstrating by their actions? Nothing was going to stop them from getting him to Jesus. And you might say, well, right there, 
is the scene of the ultimate friend. Isn't that the ultimate friend? They would go through all of that, but it's not. See, in this passage, they quickly fade from sight, don't they? Once we get to a few verses in, the palate drops, and after Jesus acknowledges the fact that He sees their faith, they're removed from the discussion. You see, Mark is trying to say, these men are great examples of friends, but they're incapable of being the ultimate friend. What they're doing is getting this man to the ultimate friend. See, he needs Jesus. They can't heal him. They can't stop his affliction. And what they're about to find out is the greater reality that's really going on here, they weren't even remotely prepared to address. And that is the cause of this man's problems, which is sin. Not just his own, but the reality of sin in the world. The ultimate friend in this picture here is Jesus. It's Jesus. He is the one who is able to heal this man. He is the one who is able to minister to this man. You see, we need to be people as Christians. This starts to be instructive to us because it tells us, what is the goal of being a good Christian friend? It's taking your friends to Jesus. That's what it means to be a good friend. It's not having great abilities to always counsel them well. It's not always having the ability to always physically meet their needs. That's not what it means to be a true friend. What it means to be a true Christian friend is to take people to the ultimate friend. That's Jesus. He's the only one who can meet all their needs. He's the only one that can be said, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our grief and sin to bear. What a privilege to carry to Him everything to God in prayer. See, it's that kind of notion that we see going on here. These men had to get their friend to Jesus who is the ultimate friend. Now, that's the first thing I want us to look at here, and I want us to understand that as we look at this paradigm, we also see this. People who really know Jesus and really get what it means to have Jesus as a friend don't mind doing exactly what John the Baptist said. I must decrease so that He may increase. See, people who do ministry and who think too much of themselves do it because they want to get the fame. They want to be center stage. Mark shows us that real friendship, real Christian friendship, is a group of people who say, it doesn't matter what happens once we get you to Jesus, the important thing is that you've come to know Jesus. That's what matters most. Not what you say about me, but what you come to know about Him. That's the first thing I want us to look at this morning out of this patch. The second thing I want us to look at then is the healing Savior. I want you to notice something about this. This is really incredible. I want you to think about this. Just kind of get, get your mind wrapped around it. Jesus is standing there. I mean, just, just think about this. This building is not all that different from what those homes would have been like, a nice stucco building. And I'm standing here, and I'm preaching to you, right? Jesus is standing there. He's preaching. And all of a sudden, you start hearing this over the top of, of where Jesus is at. 
ripping, tearing. All of a sudden, stuff starts dropping down. Dust starts dropping down from the ceiling. A little hole starts to open up. They're continuing. I mean, just think about what would have been going on. That's what's happening here. Jesus was preaching. Jesus was doing all this. And all of a sudden, disruption from above. And this man is lowered down in front of Jesus. And this is the incredible thing about Jesus. I want you just to get the picture here. Jesus looks up. And he doesn't go, you tore up the dude's house. What were you thinking? He's not sitting there worried about that. He's not sitting there worried about the fact that, don't you understand that I'm supposed to be here preaching? And I mean, I'm the son of God. I'm standing here to give a good word. And you're disrupting the service. See, we have to see something incredible about Jesus. Jesus basically looks and sees their faith And looks at this man and says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now that has to be something amazing about Jesus as well. Don't you see it? You know, last a couple weeks ago, not last week, a couple weeks ago, we looked at the leper and Jesus touches the leper. Here, Jesus looks at this. Can you imagine if this man has been lame most of his life or all of his life? You, You know the pervading culture, right? I mean, it had to have either been his parents or he that sinned. That was the idea that would have been going around. He did something or they did something to end him up here. Can you imagine what it would be like to have Jesus speak to you and say, Son, your sins are forgiven. Just the fact that he would say, Son, who knows if this man had ever really heard that kind of language said to him, that kind of tenderness, because it actually is a tender word that Jesus uses here when he says son. It's a sign of intimacy. It's a sign of deep care. It's a sign of saying, you're part of my family. You you get the picture of what's going on here? Jesus looks at this man in his desperate state and says, you need to know that you're valuable. You need to know that you matter. You need to know that you're significant to me. See, doesn't that start to say something to us about Jesus? Don't you think? I'd kind of like to know a Jesus like that. I'd kind of like to know a Savior who's like that. Because maybe some of you in here have experienced that where you've not been affirmed by your family, not been cared for. And do you see the kind of person that Jesus is? He knows He understands and He speaks right in to that situation. See, Jesus doesn't immediately go and say, get up and walk. Jesus goes after what's really the problem. This man is a sinner. Now that had to have astounded not only the scribes, which you read about here, but probably astounded His friends because they most likely showed up to have Jesus say, get up and be healed. And go forth and prosper. Sin no more. But that's not what they get. They get this intimate, caring man who says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, what we also see going on here is this idea of it's an unexpected statement in this way. God does this throughout the Scriptures. He does things which really seem to upset people. Think about Naaman. For those of you that don't remember Naaman, Naaman was living back in the time of the prophets, and he has leprosy. He's this great general, 
and he has developed leprosy. And so they send him to Israel to, to see their prophet, and the prophet basically tells him, I believe it was Elisha, it tells him to go to the river Jordan and wash himself seven, seven times. Now, Naaman is put off and says, we've got much cleaner rivers back in Syria. Why in the world would I get in that nasty, stinky Jordan? See, it's unexpected. It's those kind of things that, that God does. He does things which we kind of go, what's that got to do with anything? How's that really going to help? And so you can kind of see people like going, Jesus, the man has messed up legs. He can't walk. You know, don't get all caught up in all that spiritual mumbo jumbo. Do something practical. Can't you, can't you think that that's probably how people think? We think that way sometimes, don't we? Lord, you know, it's great that you saved me. Could you just get a little more money in the checking account? See, don't we sometimes think like that? Lord, it's great that you've done all those things. How about helping us get a new car? You want to prove to us you care about us? How about helping our child get well from all this sickness they've been having for the last few years? See, Jesus sometimes doesn't seem very practical. But the reality is, is that if we wait long enough, we start to see just how incredible what he's doing is. Jesus, what he's up to is saying, I'm not just come to deal with the symptoms. I'm a real physician. I've come to deal with the cause. See, don't we appreciate that about a doctor who doesn't just sit there and say, well, take this, take this, take this, take this, take this, and all your symptoms will go away. What we really want from a doctor is for him to deal or her to deal with what's causing all the symptoms. And see, that's exactly what Jesus does. He's the healing Savior. He basically says, yes, you need healing, but you need healing of a much more profound kind. Because the lame legs the frustrating circumstances, the hurtful relationships, all of that is a symptom of the big problem, which is sin. And not everybody else's sin. Your big problem is your sin. See, he doesn't say, I forgive sin. He says, I forgive your sins. Your sins are forgiven. Because that was the paralytic's biggest problem, his own sin. And that's true for us as well. Now what we see here then is also the fact that Jesus is not just merely going for the physical issue. He's really going after the heart. That's really what we see going on here. Jesus says, why do you, in verse 8, why do you question these things in your hearts? See, he really is going after this. He's trying to draw the scribes in particular to not merely get caught up in the issues of morality and ethics. In other words, he's saying, don't get so caught up in, in the moment that you miss the big picture. Because see, you see what they're doing. They're saying, this man cannot forgive sins. Why? Well, because the only person that can forgive sins is God. What would it have required them to do? To change their understanding. See, the one thing they cannot accept is the same thing that Jonah couldn't accept about God. When God spared the Ninevites and Jonah said, I knew you'd do that. I knew if I went and preached to them good news, they'd repent. You wouldn't judge them. You wouldn't destroy them. 
I knew you would do that. I knew that's the kind of God you were. And I hate that that's the kind of God you are. And don't you see that in some sense what Jesus is really after in these men's hearts, what he's really going after in the scribes is, is that they really, for all their exterior bowing and scraping and all the stuff they do, quote unquote, to God, all their ethical and moral keeping, they really hate God. They hate that he loves sinners. Because what he really says to them is all your good works mean nothing because you're a sinner and what you really need is to meet the Savior see they can't accept that somehow it's got to be about me and what I do and how I accomplish these things and Jesus says no you're absolutely wrong It's all about what I do for you. You need to be forgiven. You cannot forgive yourself. And do you see how even with the scribes, Jesus is caring for them. Even as he confronts them, he's trying to draw them to a place where they will accept the fact that the real answer here is, yes, he can forgive sins because he is God. Jesus brings them to a place of decision. He's either mad, he's bad, or he's God. The third and final point then is the suffering king. And notice what Jesus does here. He asks this clarifying question. He says, which is easier in verse 9, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Now, which one's easier to say? Well, of course your sins are forgiven. I mean, I could stand up here all day long and say, your sins are forgiven, But if one of you has an incurable illness, you'd say, if I could say, you know, if Deb was here this morning and I said, Deb, see, your eyes be healed, some of you might go, I I might actually think about this this stuff a little more seriously. See, the point that Jesus is really trying to get at here is, is that they think what's really easier to say is to say your sins are forgiven. We're going to find out in a few minutes that's probably not the case. But at least externally, it's a whole lot easier to make Statements like, be warm and well-fed, than to actually go get a blanket and buy a loaf of bread for somebody, right? It's a whole lot easier to say that than it is to do something. And so what Jesus does then is he does this amazing thing. He says, he looks to this young man, and he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. We see that Jesus takes that question and He says, I'll show you what I'm able to do. I'm going to show you that I have the authority to forgive sins. So I'm going to forgive. I'm going to actually heal this man. But you notice what's really in play here is not whether or not Jesus can heal this person. Why? Because He'd healed a bunch of people. That's really not the big issue here. What Jesus is really trying to get across to them is, I really have the authority to forgive sins. I really am who you think I'm not. I really am God come in the flesh to forgive people of their sins. Not because of what they do, but because what I will do for them. That's really who I am. 
Now, the interesting thing here is, is the people, including the scribes, even though some people question whether or not they were, it says, and they all were amazed and glorified God. Now, this, it's the interesting thing, and I think we want to keep all that together. We want to believe that that whole crowd, including the scribes, gave praise to God because it teaches us something. And here's what it teaches us. You can actually be a, a person that says, praise the Lord. I just give glory to God and have absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. See, in this room this morning, there may be people who for a lifetime have gotten up and said, glory, I just want to praise God. I just want to give glory to God. I'd be nothing without God. But see, it's easy to say glory to God. It's hard to say, I bend the knee to King Jesus. See, because now you're dealing with a person. Now you're dealing with someone who's able to say this and not that. Now you're dealing with someone who's able to confront you and question you and convict you. And that's a situation that many people who sit in churches every single Sunday want to have absolutely nothing to do with. Let's just praise God. real question is, but are you willing to submit to Jesus? Do you really see who Jesus is? And do you see what He's doing? You may not, but I want you to see here this. I want you to look at the amazing implications of what's being said here. As you look at this passage and as we watch through the whole situation as we get down to the end, here's what we see going on. Jesus actually is doing something profoundly incredible. When he said to this young man, son, your sins are forgiven, he actually committed himself to something that none of the people standing there or sitting there had any idea of, and that was this. Someone's got to go pay for those sins. See, in saying your sins are forgiven, God doesn't just wink at sin and go, hey, you know, everybody makes mistakes. God says, if you sin, someone must die. The wages of sin is death. That's the wages. That's what you earn for sinning is death. And as Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven, what we really see in the backdrop is this. Someone's got to go pay for those sins. And what we see in this passage is Jesus saying, not only... I forgive your sins. Not only do I have the authority to forgive sins, but I'm willing to go pay the cost. I'll stand on, I'll stay on the cross, not you. Don't you see what's happening here? Don't you see the great exchange? You get up and you go walk. I'll be crippled for you. I'll be punctured for you. I'll take the penalty for you. I'll be the ultimate friend. Because see, doesn't Jesus tell us, greater love hath no one than that he lay down his life for a friend. And don't you see what's going on here? Is the ultimate friend is going to lay down his life. The ultimate Savior is going to be wounded so that we might be healed. The ultimate King is going to suffer so that we might be set free from the bondage 
and the curse of sin and death. And if you this morning need that kind of Savior, then you've begun to understand the gospel, the good news. You've begun to see, I'm a sinner, and the only hope for me is Jesus. May God make that so in our midst. Amen.